Hello and welcome to The Intersection. I'm Mark Riley. Thanks for being with us. Despite the heroic resistance of the Ukrainian armed forces and its people, the Russian onslaught against the country's major cities continues. It continues despite the Western media's narrative that the Russian troops are demoralized, disorganized, and unable to push forward according to President Vladimir Putin's alleged timetable. It continues in spite of Western sanctions, we're told, are crippling the Russian economy. The forces of Russia are pushing into Ukraine's biggest cities, and the capital of Kyiv could well be under siege by the time you hear this. More than three million Ukrainians have fled the country, with more escaping the Russian invasion each and every day. Sad to say, the two agenda items Ukrainian President Zelensky has asked for, a no-fly zone over his country and allowing Ukrainian pilots to fly MiG fighter jets from a U.S. airbase in Germany, are not going to happen. There's no guarantee either could force Russia to abandon its war, but without either, the overrunning of Ukraine appears now to be inevitable. What are we to make of Western hesitancy to really go all out to help Ukraine. Now, I say this knowing there are some who will argue that we have gone as far as prudence will allow. The West, particularly Poland, has taken in an enormous number of refugees and other countries have given the Ukrainian military weapons and expertise. Unfortunately, from where I sit, that's not going to be enough in the long run. President Joe Biden has gotten on the phone with Chinese President Xi to warn of implications and consequences if Beijing gives material aid to Russia. Exactly what those implications are, exactly what those consequences are, we don't now know. As I mentioned in a previous episode, China may not be giving material aid, but there are credible reports that they're supporting Russia in other ways, like buying their oil and gas, which in turn allows Russia to continue the war, that Biden will likely not be able to stop. At this point, the American president is not in a position to tell China not to buy oil and gas from Russia. And while Western politicians and media trumpet the well-polished lines about freedom and democracy, ours and theirs, black and brown people in the U.S. and other parts of the world will point up the curious lack of interest regarding people fleeing war and repression in the Middle East and Africa, not to mention the attempts to thwart democracy here in the U.S., which we'll talk about later on in this episode. One thing is clear. Should Russia emerge from this invasion as victors, it will speak volumes about NATO's viability, America's prestige, and the ability of sanctions to affect any nation's behavior. Trust me, no matter what Biden said to Xi and vice versa, China is paying very, very close attention. After all, they have designs on Taiwan, and they have had for a lot of years. You see how quickly this can turn ugly. And then there's this. The West, in particular America, has a short attention span. I hate to say, I really do hate to say this, but I believe it to be true. Right now, there's a great deal of empathy with Ukrainians and their cause. I'm not sure it's going to last forever. As prices for a lot of consumer goods across Europe, the UK, and the US start hitting the ceiling, people will begin to focus on that and not so much 
on the plight of Ukraine. This, I hate to say it again, is a sad political reality and not at all a reflection of the struggle that country is currently engaged in to fight off Russia. Unless there is something to refocus Western opinion, a peace will likely be brokered and it's a peace that will not favor the Zelensky government. Those who hold out hope that Russians will wake up, see the light, and one day depose Putin are fooling themselves. A large segment of the Russian population, mostly young, does not want the war. That's absolutely true. They know better than many people. And by the way, these are younger people from across the, gro uh, across the globe, not just in Russia. But they know better than many of their leaders know that the way to reduce dependency on Russian oil and gas is to fast track alternative fuel sources. Think about this, because the media is not going to tell you this. Western, Eastern, Northern, Southern, doesn't matter which media. The fact of the matter is, had the countries of the world, and particularly of Europe and the U.S., fast-tracked climate change fighting, in other words, alternative fuels, alternative sources, and those sorts of things, had they done that five or six years ago, then those countries, the West, would be a lot further in reducing dependency on Russian oil and gas, Middle Eastern oil and gas, wherever's oil and gas. And young people, because they were the ones that started the fight against climate change, they know that time has been lost and now everyone's saying, well, now we have to go to Saudi Arabia or this place or that place to try and get that oil and gas. And I do mean fast track these alternative sources, not lecture people about how long it will take to actually move toward alternative fuel sources. If I sound like a broken record on this, that's my cross to bear. I'm trying my best, my level best, not to tune out all the news about Ukraine. I can't. Up next. Is this the best Republicans can do? They equate representing a client with sympathy for their alleged crime. They're now trying to sabotage President Joe Biden's nominee to the Supreme Court with this garbage. Really? This is The Intersection. It's springtime and you're listening to Mark Riley, the intersection of politics and culture. Welcome back to The Intersection. As the Biden administration tries to rightly diversify the federal bench, Republicans have come up with a new tactic to discredit his nominees. Completely ignoring the dictum that persons charged with a crime are entitled to a competent defense, they've chosen to question their fitness for the bench by linking their roles as past public defenders with being soft on crime. Guilty of this shameful behavior includes Senators Josh Hawley, Tom Cotton, and no less than Ted Cruz and Mitch McConnell. This have-you-no-shame offensive is itself offensive. But these folks have none. That's shame. They really don't. In attacking nominees to the federal bench, they're striking at the very fiber 
of American law. Now, they've decided to go after Supreme Court nominee Ketanji Brown Jackson, her sin, representing detainees at Guantanamo Bay. In a background paper on her nomination, the Republican National Committee said her, quote, advocacy for these terrorists is, quote, going beyond just giving them a competent defense. This is the Republican National Committee saying this. They are now saying that this is going beyond giving these detainees a competent defense in their minds. This is the same RNC that resolved that the January 6th insurrection was, quoting here, legitimate political discourse. Never mind pointing out that those insurrectionists could also be labeled as terrorists and their legal representation challenged on precisely the same basis. While we're on the subject, does anyone in the GOP care to call out Justice Clarence Thomas's wife, Ginny, for attending the so-called Stop the Steal rally on January 6th? She said she left before the storming of the Capitol, but that is not really the point. What's good for the goose is good for the gander, as they used to say back in the day. It's no accident that many of those the GOP lawmakers have chosen to go after are women and women of color who have worked in the past as public defenders. In fact, Biden's choices are breaking new ground. Not too long ago, the fact that a nominee was once a public defender might well have disqualified them. Not so for lawyers who represented, for example, the tobacco industry. Back in 2002, a federal judge named Lewis Kaplan was part of a three-judge panel that ruled in favor of the tobacco industry in a major case. Turns out he represented tobacco giants Brown and Williamson in the 70s and 80s. On the other hand, today's Republican Party is so feckless that they'll attempt to hold a nominee accountable for cases that they actually won. What kind of world do we live in where those representing the poor are held accountable, while those who act as mouthpieces for corporate misdeeds are rarely, if ever, questioned? Think about that for a minute. Rarely, if ever, questioned. Because, of course, corporations are entitled to a competent defense when they are accused of misdeeds, like the tobacco industry was. Judge Brown Jackson's confirmation hearings begin this week. Her career has been stellar, and any attempt to Velcro her to the defendants she represented is utter nonsense. She more than deserves to be on the Supreme Court, and the Republicans know it. Up next, racial disparities in mail-in ballot rejections in Texas. Surprise, this is the intersection. Join the conversation at Mark Riley Media on Facebook. Welcome back to the intersection. The New York Times did a deep dive into recent primary election results in Texas. Their findings indicate that some 18,000 mail-in votes in the state's most populous counties were rejected. This represents a disproportionate share of black ballots in Harris County, which includes the city of Houston. 
The Times says the hefty number of rejections were a direct result of the voter suppression legislation passed by the Republican legislature last year. Now, I don't want to get into a deep, deep dive like the Times did into what the new law actually did. Suffice to say, those who enacted it sold it to the public by saying it would enhance election security while actually expanding voter participation. <laughs> There's a laugh. If this past primary is any indication, it did neither. Here's what happened by the numbers. In Harris County, areas with large black populations were 44% more likely to have their ballots rejected than mostly white areas. Black residents were the largest racial group in six of the nine zip codes with the most rejections. Now, these numbers should surprise no one. Texas is but one of a host of states that decided to pass laws making it harder for people to vote. While we scream and cry about democracy in the Ukraine. The whole time these bills were under consideration, lawmakers swore up and down it wouldn't hurt black people. Black folks should just take full notice of this fact. Voter suppression is no illusion and it's no joke. Consider the possibility that midterm elections will reveal numerous districts across America, not just in Texas, where the margin of victory for Republicans is less than the number of rejected mail-in ballots. Don't think it can happen? I would beg to differ. There's really only one way to counter this, this close to the midterms. That is, advocacy organizations across America will have to stand up on behalf of at-risk voters and make sure every vote counts. Here's the other thing. Turnout is always lower in midterm elections than presidential balloting. That means if black communities turn out in higher than expected numbers, the good guys win. And by the way, that was part of the story in the 2020 elections. Folks turned out. I've said many times before that I always thought the Voting Rights Act would safeguard the franchise for people of color, certainly for the rest of my lifetime. I have to say, I was wrong. It takes constant struggle, not just to ensure the right to vote, but to maintain programs like Social Security, a woman's right to choose, and many, many more. All are seemingly under attack constantly in 21st century America. Protecting them all is part of the work. I'm sure, like many of you, Many of you, and certainly I have, heard the commercial for State Farm Insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's part of the American lexicon. There are apparently a fair number of State Farm customers and employees who would disagree. Some of them would disagree vehemently. The beef stems from the allegation that employees were encouraged to find fraud in predominantly black neighborhoods to avoid paying out claims. It started with a customer in Chicago who said his agent told him he didn't believe the substance of a claim because according to the customer, there's a lot of fraud in your area. He sued, 
but couldn't get a judge to certify his action as a class action. Then, a woman who worked for State Farm for 28 years, a black woman, offered to testify on his behalf. The former employee said she was fired after alleging the same thing, that State Farm deliberately used fraud as a pretext to deny claims to black customers. She won a case before the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission and is now suing State Farm. Of course, State Farm issued a boilerplate response. Now, this is something that I, I have to say happens all too often in corporate America. A company is accused of doing something wrong, racially discriminating, whatever, and they issue a response that is very similar to this. Quote, recent allegations of discrimination do not reflect the state, state farm culture. We use our business as a force for good and believe that racism has no place anywhere in society. End quote. Gee, then why are 150 current and former state farm workers bringing a suit of their own? Of course, sheer numbers alone doesn't make State Farm discriminatory, but one has to wonder why so many seem to think so, despite their assertion that discrimination isn't part of their culture. It brings to mind back in the day when cabbies in New York City routinely refused to take passengers to black neighborhoods, then swore up and down they weren't racist. The former employee involved in this State Farm situation, Carla Campbell Jackson, who was once described by co-workers as Ms. State Farm, has described a system within the insurer that routinely alleged fraud in black areas. Routinely alleged fraud. In 2016, State Farm denied $136 million in claims and said that that was proof that their special investigations unit was working as planned. Now, it isn't clear how much of that money might have gone to black claimants, but I think I already know how this is going to end, even though State Farm says it will fight the suits in court. That's kind of boilerplate, too. They'll settle for a certain amount and at the same time not admit any wrongdoing. That's how companies work. That's how American corporations work. Isn't that how these things always end? And I'd be willing to bet State Farm won't even lose too many black customers as a result. Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Intersection. The executive producer of the broadcast is Ms. Kim Jack Riley. Music is by Eric Lund. Until we meet again, please stay well.